0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast. Making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Saturday, October the 15th, 2022. It is currently 9.22 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Well, I hope you're ready. I have my Bible open to the book of Amos. It is time for us to return to the book of Amos and try to complete chapter 6 this morning. Hopefully before this afternoon is over, we will, or this evening, we will have completed uh, Amos chapter 7. And then that leaves tomorrow to try to finish chapter 8 and chapter 9. That is the plan. I don't know if we'll be able to pull that off, but we'll we'll do as much as we can. Because again, we are still, we're way behind. So I would challenge everyone. I don't know where you are in your working through the book of Amos using the comprehensive book Bible study method. But if you haven't started transitioning over to the book synthesis part of the study, you need to start working on book synthesis right now. At least do this. Go back and look at your notes at the steps for book synthesis and start trying to at least least start thinking that way or start preparing yourself for at least doing some of the book synthesis part of the study because we definitely are there. We have so much to do. So uh, and I and I'm I'm sorry we got behind but you 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 basically wipe out a week of being able to do live broadcasts because while you're on vacation that puts us way behind but I'm I'm going to make sure that we bring this study to of the book of Amos to some kind of satisfying conclusion hopefully a dramatic conclusion where everyone will say wow That was the best study of the book of Amos I have ever been a part of. Okay, that's what I'm shooting for. We may fall short of that, but at least we can shoot for that kind of a conclusion. Now, we are in Amos chapter 6. Remember what we're doing. We've been given permission by Through the Bible Ministries, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. We can use their content. We're kind of using their content in a unique way. I'm playing it and reviewing it, but I'm really kind of, what I'm trying to do is to let you hear Dr. J. Vernon McGee's perspective on the book of Amos as we go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And you're hearing my perspective at the exact same time, which gives you two different perspectives as you're working through the book verse by verse. And so that really hopefully gives you a lot of different perspectives and a lot of information to really really bring the book of Amos into focus. Now, we are or at least for me, I am completely perplexed at how Dr. J Vernon McGee handled Amos chapter 6. I I am truly confused and truly perplexed by it. But that's why I love listening to so many sermons, because you never know. Like you can listen to 20 sermons on, say, Amos or any other book or any other chapter. And all of a sudden you'll listen to that 21st or 22nd sermon and you'll be like, wait a minute. I've never seen that. I've never seen anyone interpret that way. I've never seen that perspective. That just means that you have to sometimes, and you you have to continue to listen and continue to study because whatever you think you know about a chapter right now, whatever interpretation you have with about a chapter right now, trust me, there are other interpretations, there are other perspectives, which may challenge yours, which may demonstrate that yours was wrong in the first place that's why my my view is and i and i'm very committed to this that any study i do today on any book or any chapter is worthless come tomorrow and you say what do you mean by worthless it means tomorrow if i study that same chapter that same book everything i study today i'm throwing out and i'm starting over that's why I never use old notes. That's why I never, I, I, because you always have to continue to study the text anew because your your past understanding may have been flawed. It may have been incorrect. You may have missed something. And if you continue to rely on your previous understanding of a chapter, then you, you're you locked in. You're stuck right there, and we don't want to be locked in. We have to constantly be studying anew, a fresh so that we can correct any past mistakes, because this is true of all of us. Anyone who studies the Bible, anyone who actually cares to study the Bible, here's what you need to know about your study. It is, listen, you are fallible. You're not infallible, meaning that so many of your conclusions, so many of your interpretations, not only is it possible that they're flawed, not only is it possible that they're wrong, It is probable that they're wrong and flawed. In fact, it is highly likely that it is flawed and incorrect in some way, shape, or form. I know you don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear that, but that is the reality. So when it came to Amos chapter 6, it felt to me that Dr. J. Vernon McGee completely ignored what I think is the hermeneutical key. Like I, I think it's important. And and I've been trying to emphasize this a lot. I try to emphasize this in my preaching. I've tried to emphasize this in a lot of our studies, that it's important sometimes to figure out the hermeneutical key to a book. Sometimes there's that one verse, that one phrase, that one idea. No, that's the hermeneutical key right there. That's the whole The interpretation of the book hinges on that. For example, Jude the, the 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 hermeneutical key for the book of Jude is that he's writing to people to motivate them to contend for the faith. He's not writing to them, warning them that they're in danger of following the false teachers. No, 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 no. He writes to them. So you have to interpret Jude not as a warning to not follow the, the false teachers, but it's a it's an encouragement. It's an exhortation to get you to contend with the false teachers. And so much of the preaching ignores that hermeneutical key. The hermeneutical key in Jude is right there at the beginning. I'm writing to you so that you will contend for the faith. That's the hermeneutical key. So sometimes the book will have one. Sometimes each individual chapter will have its own hermeneutical key. So sometimes whenever you're doing, like if you're doing a chapter, a chapter uh, summary method, or if you're, you're, you're doing the chapter analysis part of the comprehensive Bible, uh, book, Bible study method for each chapter, you need to ask yourself, is there a hermeneutical key to that chapter? Is there one thing, one phrase, one idea, one verse that goes, that's it. That's the verse that, and that is the key to interpreting the entire chapter. Always. You need to always be on the lookout for the hermeneutical key. The key that unlocks how to give come to a proper interpretation of a book of a chapter. Right. And I think I, and, and for me, Dr. J. Vernon McGee ignored the hermeneutical key. And the hermeneutical key in Amos chapter six, at least for the first part of the chapter, and I'm picking up my Bible here and pencils are dropping everywhere. But I like that. I like that sound because it, it shows that this desk. I, I, I sometimes I, I I know I could move everything out of the way so that you don't hear all of the sounds of books or pencils and you don't hear all of that, but I kind of like it because it it demonstrates that this desk is not a desk just for me to sit here and talk. This is a desk of study. This is a desk where we we dig into scripture and we use all of these reference tools that are scattered all around me. We use notebooks. We use pencils. We use everything. So I I, I like that. I, I know you can't see it, but I like, I like that the sounds sometimes give it away what's happening. Maybe you don't care. But all right, I digress. Amos chapter 6. The hermeneutical key, at least for the first part. Now, may, we may find, now sometimes maybe there's a hermeneutical key for the first part of a chapter, and there's a hermeneutical key for the second part of the chapter, because you know sometimes the chapter is really divided into like two really different ideas or concepts, but there's no way to get around that in Amos chapter 6, verse 1 is the key. Woe, right? There's the woe. Remember, I kind of gave you a special assignment or at least a kind of a challenge to find all of the woes in scripture, right? Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Woe to those who are at ease. Dr. J. Vernon McGee acknowledged that, but then as he moves through the chapter, he ignores that. It's like, that's what the chapter is about. It's a woe to those who are at ease. Well, Dr. J. Vernon McGee mentions that they're at ease, that there's kind of a complacency and apathy. They're just laying back. They're at a t- they're, it's a time of material wealth. They have great blessing. They're at peace, and they're just kicking back, relaxing, right? He, he acknowledged that, but then as he moves through chapter six, he identified what he believed to be three national sins of Israel. Does everybody remember what those three national sins were? He believed the three national sins of Israel was number one, sex, number two, heathen music, and number three, alcoholism. And the problem with his conclusion is it completely ignores that hermeneutical key. No, those three things that are mentioned later on, i don't one, I don't even think they're mentioning sex, and I don't think it's about heathen music, and I don't think it's about alcoholism. The three things he mentioned are actually symptoms of this woe, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. They're just laying back. They're complacent. Let me show you what I mean by this. I really, I really emphasized this yesterday, but I'm going to, I'm going to do so again quickly this morning. Uh, Amos chapter six, look at starting in verse four. I'm going to use the translation I have here. They lie on beds and laid with ivory sprawled out on their couches. Now, according to Dr. J. Vernon McGee, uh, they lie on beds and laid with ivory and sprawled out on their couches. He said that that's sex. I don't see that as, all. it shows that they're at ease. They're laying around. They're apathetic. They're complacent. And the fact that they are on beds and laid with ivory and sprawled out on their couches means that they, it shows the material wealth. They have this nice furniture and they're just kicked back. They're not worried about God. They're not worried about spirituality. They're not worried about judgment. They're not worried about worship. They're just relaxed. All right? Then the next part, uh, they dine on lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. All right, The idea there is they got plenty of food. They're just laying around and eating. They don't have to worry about where the next meal is coming from. This is demonstrating that they have great material wealth and it's led to a spiritual complacency and and apathy towards the things of God. In other words, all of this luxury has caused caused them to become spiritually distracted and they don't care about the things of God. That's the issue here. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invert and invent their own musical instruments like David. Now he says, this is heathen music. I I don't think that the emphasis is on heathen music. The emphasis is they have the ability just to lay around and go, let's create a musical instrument. Hey, let's focus on making some songs. In other words, they have, there's so much, everything is so good for them at that moment that, that they're just focused on pleasure. They're just focused on living life, not on God, not on worship then they drink wine by the bowlful. Now we, we, we found that some believe these bowls that they were drinking wine in and the idea that they have a bowl filled with wine, not a small cup, but a bowl demonstrating again excess. But it's not about alcoholism. It sounds, many believe that the bowls here were bowls used in sacrifice where blood would have been. Now they've filled it with wine. In other words, that they've abandoned the worship of God for their own self-indulgence. And, and my interpretation is based off, well, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. He gets down to that part and he ignores that there, the whole portion here is that woe to them who are at ease. That's the point. So that's the interpretation I'm giving and I'm sticking with it because I believe the text stays with mine. He, he ignores the context. You can draw your own conclusion. I can't wait to hear what everyone has to say. But I, we, we review all of that so that now we can move on to verse 7. Therefore, look at verse 7. Therefore, they will now go into exile as the first of the captives, and the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end. See, the point is, they're all laid back, relaxed. Boom, judgment is coming. Judgment. The feasting is going to come to an end. The luxury is going to come to an end. And they don't even see it coming. They don't even see it coming. They're not spiritually aware because they're so distracted by the blessings in their life. And this would be a very much a challenge, not to the world. Now, Dr. J. Vernon McGee constantly applies the book of Amos to the world. No, no, this is a a prophecy to the children of Israel. This is to those who are in covenant relationship with God. This is the words towards us as believers. Has the church become so just lazy and apathetic and complacent spiritually that we're distracted by so many other things? There's a way to draw the application to us. But now let's see what he does with verse 7. And we'll listen as he finishes up chapter 6. And then later, we'll go to chapter 7, 8, and 9. But let's finish chapter 6 strong. Are you ready? Here we go.
1: Now, we move on here, and we begin at verse 7. He says now, because we're in this sixth chapter, where Israel is admonished now in the present, to depart from iniquity. And the reason, of course, is that it's going to lead to the destruction of the nation. And he makes this remarkable statement, Amos does, in verse 7. "...therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive, and the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed." Now, this is a remarkable statement. And because of these three great sins... He says, therefore, and as we said last time that we just heard a new one about that little word, therefore, that when you come to it in the Bible, you better investigate and see why it's therefore. And so therefore here leads to this great statement, and it is that the northern kingdom will go into captivity first. And that is the direction in which they were moving, and they were moving rapidly. They were much closer to it than they could really believe. Now, verse 8, and we'll continue to move on down now. The Lord God hath sworn by himself, saith the Lord, the God of hosts. Please note, he did not not draw, he,
0: he connected it to what he believed the three national sins of Israel were, but he... He didn't realize, wait a minute, this goes with the idea that they see these sins weren't the sins like you've described. It's the sins of of complacency and spiritual apathy. And they don't even realize that they're going into captivity because they're so distracted. He wanted to, it's sex. It's heathen music. It's alcohol. And it's like, no, no, that's, that wasn't the emphasis here. But okay. Now chapter eight, or not chapter eight, verse eight. Let me read it here. Chapter six, verse eight. The Lord God has sworn by himself, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies. I loathe Jacob's pride and hate his citadels, so I will hand over the city and everything in it. If I was to read that in the Bible I typically use, which is right here, my King James, it reads this way. The Lord God has sworn by himself, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. All right. Uh, Okay, good. Someone just said that they understood my... My, they understood things more than the way I saw it in chapter 6 with the supposed three national sins of Israel. Now, I want to almost offer a special assignment here, but I won't. It would be interesting for us to see, is there agreement on what the three national sins of Israel were? Is there agreement? If like, we start doing a Google search, would we find agreement? Because to me, one of their primary uh, national sin would be the sin of idolatry. That would be the absolute go-to because that Israel constantly, I mean, throughout the Bible, they constantly turn to idolatry. Over and, over and over and over and over and over and over again. That to me would be number one. I don't even think there could be an argument. I don't think there should even be a debate. The three national sins is not sex, <laughs> heathen music, and alcohol. It's idolatry. Right? That, that's number one. And I don't know what I would, would put down for the, for the other two. Maybe we'll return to that. But
1: let's go back to chapter 6, verse 8. I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate
0: Someone just said I would think this chapter points to pride as well. Yeah, that I agree. I agree. And I think may, maybe could we find that pride was an ongoing issue with Israel. That's That's something we could look at maybe we could identify two of the national sins there, but all right.
1: His palaces Therefore will I deliver up the city with all that is in it. Now, God hated all of this. If you want to know God's attitude today to the present-day philosophy of the new morality regarding sex and gluttony and the music and drunkenness, why, God makes it very clear here. God says he hates it and they had become as a result of See once again he's 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 making it about sex music and alcohol
0: it says the lord god has sworn by himself saith the lord god i abhor what he hates is the excellency of jacob that's what he hates the excellency of jacob and if you want to read that in a different translation we know what the I, um i loathe jacob's pride He doesn't say, I hate their sex and their music and their alcohol. He says, I hate their pride. I hate their arrogance. Like, how can someone... (laughs) I'm sometimes baffled in preaching and Bible teaching. Someone can literally take a verse that says one thing. I hate their pride. He's like, no, if you want to know what God hates, he hates their sex, he hates their music, and he hates their alcohol. That's not what the text says. It literally says, I hate their pride. How can preachers say one thing that is completely opposite to what the text literally says? That That is the most... That's the most baffling thing in all of my life of of being a Christian is I'll I'll hear a sermon or someone say something about a text of scripture and you're just like, that's not what the text says. Can we not stick with what the text actually says? The words that are used, he
1: hates their pride. That's what he hates. Godless nation. Now, these things take you away from God and will not bring you to God at all. Verse 9, And it shall come to pass, if there remain ten men in one house, that they shall die. In other words, there would be no defense for ten men to get in one house. They might think that would be protection that no one could take them. Well, God says they all are going to die. Verse 10, And a man's uncle shall take him up, And he that burneth him to bring out the bones of the house shall say unto him that is inside of the house, Is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, No. Then shall he say, Hold thy tongue, for we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. Now, this is a strange statement, but it just simply means this, that it was a day when there was no freedom of religion. They could worship among idols, and go into idolatry, but they could not even mention the name of the Lord. Now we come to verse 11. For behold, the Lord commandeth, and he will smite the great house with breeches and the little house with clefts. High and low, great and small, are going to be affected by this when the Assyrian comes down and takes them into captivity. And verse 12, "...shall horses run upon the rock." Well, if you've ever ridden horseback in a mountain country where there's a great deal of rock, you know a horse can slip and fall. Among the many things that I did as a young fella, I belonged to the National Guard and to the cavalry. That's the horse cavalry. And we were out on patrol duty, And I was riding a big, tall, red horse, and the section I patrolled was very rocky. It was up in Middle Tennessee, and my horse slipped out from under me, not necessarily from under me, but because I went right down with the horse, and he fell on the side of one of my feet, and as a result... Why, it got me off of patrol duty, and I was actually sent back home because they didn't want me hanging around. And I never regretted that because it cut me out of a great deal of hard work, very frankly, and probably I'd ended up peeling potatoes. But I got out of it because of that. And I always appreciated that old red horse. But this is the same thing, shall horses run upon the rock? Well, they better not. They'll slip and fall. Will one plow there with oxen? You couldn't run a plow over a rock. For ye have turned justice into gall, and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. In other words, you've done that which is contrary to reason. That which is. And that's another, uh, if you want to
0: talk about national sins in the book of Amos, as he points to him to Israel. It's their 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 perverting of justice, the way they treat the poor, their lack of of justice or or, or righteousness and and what they're doing, um, that would be you know it, it, they pervert justice would be a major issue here in the book. He he focused on <laughs> sex, alcohol, and music.
1: Okay, but all right, let's continue. Contrary to that which is right and that which is righteousness. That is the thing that he's saying to them. In other words, you've acted very foolish. As foolish as I was, and maybe not so foolish, in riding that old red horse over that rocky terrain. Now, verse 13. Ye who rejoice in a thing of nothing, who say, have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? Now, they've taken nothing. Actually, both the Old and the New Testament treat idols as nothing. But the very interesting thing that they recognize that back of idols there are demons. The Greeks were probably as intelligent a people as ever been upon this earth. And for a period of time there was a glory that was Greece. It manifests itself in many ways. And one of course was intellectual. They were highly sophisticated and intellectual people during that particular period. Now, they worshipped idols. You remember Paul? He says, why, you've got so many of them that you even made an idol to the unknown God. They were an intelligent people, but they worship idols. And somebody says, well, there's nothing to an idol. Why in the world would an intelligent people do that? Don't you believe that the Greeks worship nothing? The idol's nothing. But back of the idol was a demon. And I will go along today with many of these people who are in cults who tell me that some remarkable things take place in the cult. I'll go along with you and say the remarkable thing takes place. But who done it? That's my question. Who done it? And the one that did it, I'm confident, is Satan and demonism is back of a great deal of this today. Now, let me move on down. Verse 14, But behold, I raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entrance of Hamath, that is all the way up into Syria, this was the chief city, under the river of the Arabah, and that of course is the river that was on the other side of Jordan River. In fact, it flowed into the Dead Sea. So that God says, through the whole extent of your land, this enemy is coming down from the north. And that enemy was not Ben-Hadad of Syria, but it was the king of Assyria. And he took these people into captivity. Now we come to a new division in the book of Amos, the last division. And this is the third major division that we have. And here we have visions of the future. All right. Now we're going to stop right there. I could finish chapter
0: seven here, but I would like to just do it uh, by itself. I would like to do it by itself. Uh, He's Obviously, he's going to cover chapter seven in like thirteen minutes, which is absolutely bizarre to me. Um, I know that they have a that he had a schedule; he had to make it through the entire Bible in five years because that was the, their schedule. But I don't know how you make it through chapter seven in thirteen minutes. I really don't. So we will dedicate an, an episode of 13. Well, it'll be longer than thirteen minutes, but we'll we'll dedicate just one episode by itself for his interpretation of chapter seven. chapter six there wasn't a lot more he added to it other than I you know his his interpretation I think well I, to me his ignoring of the hermeneutical key in chapter six. but yes, the Assyrians come in and Israel is judged because well guess what they've been sitting back at ease with indulgence, self-indulgence, at ease, complacent, spiritually apathetic, not realizing judgment is coming. And it's just a warning to those of us who profess faith in Christ, how all the things in life, many cases, many of the good things in life, all the blessings that we have, all the comforts that we have, it's very easy for all of those things to ultimately distract us. Instead of, instead of making us grateful and thankful to God, they become the focus and we begin to be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. We become distracted by these things. We indulge in these things while we ignore the word of God, the the, the doctrine, theology, church. We, we ignore all of that and we just indulge in these blessings. Sometimes the blessings can become a curse because all of the wonderful things that we have, they begin to distract us and pull us away from God and almost become a source of idolatry. It, it, it's the never-ending struggle for every believer, for every believer, because things, we always, that which will bring the most immediate pleasure always becomes the immediate focus for every person. That's just the way it is. That's why Christianity is about dying to self-denying self, which is absolutely, again, why we have to be saved by an imputed righteousness, because we fall so short of that. But they they didn't pay any attention. They ignored. They were self-indulgent. They were apathetic. They were laying around at ease. And well, look at what happens. Look at what happens. And, and you see a little bit of their pride in, in verse thirteen. I'm going to read it from a different translation. You who rejoice over Lodabar and didn't and say, didn't we capture Carnaim for uh, for ourselves by our own strength? See that they were they were they were arrogant. They were prideful. Hey, we look at look at all the things that we have done. We've got nothing to worry about. We've we, we've captured and destroyed these other places, and then verse fourteen. But look, I'm raising up a nation against you, house of Israel. This is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies, and they will oppress you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook. Of the Arabah. Like that like all, all this It's going to spread across the land. You're going to be oppressed. You're going to be taken. You have ignored. You have not cared about the things of God. And now you're going to experience, well, the judgment of God. And that concludes Amos chapter 6. Now, I, I everything in me tells me to go ahead and do 7 now. But I, I want that to be, I want chapter 7 to be a standalone by itself. Uh, because I think it just makes it easier, and uh, that's what we'll do. So, if you have any questions or thoughts about Amos chapter 6, here's what I would challenge you to do. If you haven't started working on Amos chapter 7, I don't know if you've done this for chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. I'm not going to make you go back and do this, but just remember, in each chapter, try to find what you think the hermeneutical key is. If if you don't get anything from this little episode of study, the importance of the hermeneutical key. We just witnessed someone teach Amos 6 and ignored the hermeneutical key. The hermeneutical key of chapter 6 is woe to those who are at ease. Everything that you see, all of their sins, is a symptom of this attitude of just being complacent and apathetic. He ignored that and turned the sins into something other that had no relation to that. What's the hermeneutical key in chapter 7? What was the hermeneutical key in chapter 5? What was the hermeneutical key in chapter 4? Look, some chapters you may not be able to figure it out. You may not be able to find it. I think some chapters it's obvious. Boom. And here's what's interesting. If you have a group of people who are working on it, and you're like, okay, what's the hermeneutical key here? You'll get people You'll get like, sometimes if you have five people, you'll end up with 10 different hermeneutical keys. Well, guess what? Everyone's hermeneutical key can't be right because in many cases, the different hermeneutical key, what you perceive to be the hermeneutical key is going to lead to a different interpretation. So I think it's always a struggle to find it. I think some chapters to me, it's, I mean, chapter six, it's just screams at you. It's like, okay, we're going to begin the chapter by slapping you in the face so you know how to interpret it. And other chapters, you're kind of like, well, I don't know. What is the hermeneutical key here? What is the key to that chapter? What is the key? So what's the key to chapter 7? What is the key to chapter 7? What is the key? Now, if you if you look at, uh, well, we'll just start with chapter 7, verse 1. We won't dig into the chapter right now, but just trying to get you to think this way. Uh, if I said Amos chapter 7, verse 1. Thus hath the Lord God shewed unto me, and behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Wow. Now I guess one of the key elements here is that the Lord God showed me. He's going to show him some things. Now that that means He's giving him like a vision or visions. Is it possible that there's at least three key visions here in this chapter? What are those visions? What's the purpose of those visions? The fact that it's visions, it is, is is that significant? Just, just something to look at as you work on chapter 7. What is the hermeneutical key? All right. I hate when it's 35 minutes and I feel like, wow, that, that kind of ended with anticlimactic. It was kind of anticlimactic because... But that's, that's the way he ended it. I mean, he, he uh, I think he had to end it quickly because he, he knew he had to move on to chapter seven, but I can't believe he's going, and oh, and I think the visions continue into chapter eight. I think there's three visions in seven and there's a fourth vision in chapter eight. Oh, and there's a fifth vision in chapter nine. I think there's a total of five visions between seven and nine. I think so. I believe that's correct. So uh, that could be significant. That could be significant. So, I'm already trying to help you out. All right. You can email me your thoughts on Amos chapter 6. You can, you can, uh, you can email me your thoughts about the idea of a hermeneutical key found in every book and every chapter. Whatever your thoughts are, email them to me. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. And we will return to Amos and chapter 7. Somewhere this afternoon. I, I, I promise you, somewhere, or maybe this evening, somewhere. I got lots of things to do today, but we're going to get to it because one of the things we have to do is here in just a few minutes. We have to go back to Indiana <laughs> to finish up our review of the youth conference messages because there's one more left. So that's what we're going to I I would love to pre- just continue with Amos, but we got to finish up that series. And then we can try to finish up the Amos series, and then there's other series we have to finish up as well. All right, that's the plan. So if you don't have the Church One app, download the Church One app. That's Church O-N-E. Download the app. Do a search for Theology Central. It becomes the Theology Central app. Make sure all the notifications are turned on. And you'll know every time we're going live and every time we upload a new message. Or whenever I send out a push notification, you can you can stay in contact with everything we're doing. And you'll know here in just maybe, I don't know, 15, 10 minutes, we'll be back on the air taking another virtual trip to Indiana to finish reviewing these sermons that were preached at a youth conference in the summer of 2022. And trust me, it has been a wild ride listening to them. But that's what we're going to be doing in about 10 minutes. So have that app. Work on Amos chapter 7 today. And uh, well, there we go. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.